three, two, one. Here's the thing. Timothy and I have already had our interview, but that's because we jumped right into it. And the wild part is that I am sitting down with you literally minutes after I was sitting down with my friend, Prabal Gurung, who's a designer. And before I even introduce you, I feel like this is a great way to introduce you, which is that one of New York's finest designers posted a photo of like a sanitation truck yesterday that was covered in Timothy's drawings. And he didn't realize that it was Timothy's. He didn't know it was Timothy's. And when he found out, he shared that it was Timothy's. And I was like, this was yesterday. And I was like, wait, I'm literally interviewing you both back to back the next day, which by the way, just feels like fate and destiny. And exactly. I, I, I look forward to you two knowing each other. But it was funny because before I got to this interview, before I came here, Prabhu was like, you know, I was just sitting at La Colombe and I was drinking my coffee and I was reading my book and the truck passed me and I was like, this is art. Like, this is beauty. It's just like seeing it in this, you know, and it was on a sanitation truck and like that, it made his heart so much fuller. And mm. I was like very excited to be like, well, knowing him, I know this means like this is, is going to mean so much because that's like why you do the work that you do. And yeah. when you listen to our interview today, you'll know, listeners, that this is why um, this is you'll know that it's very profound that this happened because that is like the essence of Timothy Goodman. And if you don't know Timothy Goodman, he is an award-winning artist, graphic designer, author, and public speaker. His art and words have populated walls, buildings, packaging, shoes, clothing, books, magazine covers, most recently Time Magazine, and galleries all over the world. He's worked with brands like Apple, Nike, Google, Netflix, Tiffany's, Samsung, YSL, Sundance, Uniqlo, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and more. And he regularly partners for nonprofits and schools, creating art for communities in New York. He is very avid in creating social experiments, including this viral blog and book called 40 Days of Dating. His first solo gallery, exhibition is called I'm Too Young to Not Set My Life on Fire and it was on view in the city in 2021 and in 2022 at the end of the year he launched his own Nike shoe with NBA basketball star Kevin Durant titled the KD15 Timothy Goodman as you can hear we are in New York City and we love that Nat sound Timothy's work often discusses things like mental health, manhood, race, politics, heartbreak, and love, and we get into all of that in this episode. Oh, now it's getting louder. It's, <laughs> it's okay. We can even keep Leave this. It to New York. He teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York City and regularly speaks around the world at different creative conferences. And his graphic memoir, I Always Think It's Forever, was published at the beginning of 2023 by Simon & Schuster. Timothy, it's weird to hear your own bio. I know. I know. But I... It's, it's way too long. I should have given you a much shorter version. No, I want <laughs> it. It's good because I, I feel like it's important for people to know all... Like... Yeah all the ins and outs because your approach and your philosophy to your work is it includes all of these ins and outs and um and yeah and so the way we typically kick off our conversations is something that 
I like to call a heart check-in. So I would love to ask you, Timothy Goodman, how is your heart doing today? You know, it's interesting. Um, I was looking forward to this question. Uh, if I'm being completely honest, um, which I love to do, I just, you know, I just got done with like all these book events for my book that came out about a month ago. And it's been a whirlwind of a journey the last two months leading up to it and the launch of it. Um, and I always feel really sad after I finish a big project uh, and I feel lonely, you know? And so in a lot of ways, my heart is lonely right now, mm. you know? Like, and I don't think, um, I think we have this stigma in society about what loneliness is and we try to put a bandaid over it, but I like to honor that loneliness a lot, you know? Like I, I do feel existentially lonely all the time, whether I can, I could be in, you know, an amazing relationship like I am now, I, there could be so much going on. Um, but I do have these questions about what it means to be human, what kind of meaning I'm, I have, and that's always with me, you know? And so my heart feels curious, but it's also lonely and it's a little sad because of the, the ending of the book, of launch and, and the events. And, um, you know, I think, I, and I just want to honor that, you know, yeah. and it, cause it lets me oftentimes as a creative person, as an artist, it also, that rawness uh, makes me feel um, closer to something, you know, to what it means to be human, to the questions of what it means to be human, you know? And I think as long as I'm sort of okay with being in that realm, I'll sort of be okay, you know? First of all, thank you for sharing that um, because that felt like a, such an intentional answer and very vulnerable. And I really appreciate you saying that because I also really relate to that feeling that consistent loneliness that comes with being a seeker and mm, just yeah. constantly asking that question of like, what does it mean to be human? Why are we alive? And also it's such a testament that we are recording the answer to this question after the interview because you held me accountable and said you didn't ask me how my heart was and that is the first time that anybody's ever been like wait you didn't do that and that's what i was looking forward to but it speaks to you as a person and it speaks to you as an artist because you you mean what you say when you say i want to see people and i want to be seen and so it's just like, hey, this is a platform where I can share this and I, I feel this need to share it, not just to get it off my chest, but because I know by sharing it, that in itself is an act of service. Yeah. And so thank you for being of service. And now we get to welcome people into the rest of the conversation with that note. Okay. Thanks for having me on this, by the way. What? No, Are you kidding? Your podcast is like so this... cool. Thank... Like, wow, thank all you these so incredible much. people I admire. So much. I was actually listening to the Mari one. I hadn't listened to that. Oh one my gosh! So Mari is actually hosting. Um, she's doing a workshop with another one of my friends. Do you know Ruthie Lindsay? No. Ruthie is also really amazing. They're doing a workshop this weekend at this place called Kripalu. Uh -huh. And something that I find that I'm like really admiring Mari about these days is that she is like offline. Yeah. Like actually has done the offline thing. Yeah. And she always, even when she was online, always felt 
like I feel like conflicted about that about like is Very it much. to share your work is it to share you is it to whatever and then the writing in between and mm-hmm. um, she's found a way we got her Christmas card this Christmas and like I did too. it I was loved so it. cute I was like wait this is what it means I feel like to like catch up with somebody is like you let you share a, a genuine intimate photo of like what's happening in your life and you give actual updates because the reality yeah. is in on social media too is like it's not like I don't know about you, but I feel like I've done a really good job of letting people feel like they know a lot about me or a lot about like my life and stuff, but like still being a very private person. Yeah. yeah. And I think I've gotten more and more private, like actively, like I haven't posted online as much mm-hmm. and I try to keep it to just my work. But I feel like a lot of times when your work takes so long to produce anyway, it's yeah. hard. Like when you're to, I, what do you mean you want to like fill in the gaps? And yeah, like but I decided I've, I decided yeah. in like this last big project that I did rep, I just was like, I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to fill in the gaps. I'm just going to like share as I want. And then if if my natural instinct is to not share as much, I'm going to observe that and be like, why? Why it. is that? Yeah, and honor it because yeah. it's like clearly you're on a journey that is trying to like keep you more connected up here. And so like just see what that's like exactly without feeling like the pressure to have to do it out loud all yeah, the time. yeah 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 for sure yeah how do you feel about that i've gone through many different phases with like what it means to be like online you know i think that for a long time i wanted to share everything all the time yeah. do you know why Mm, I think it was just a desire to like I really feel like I'm just an expressionist when it comes to like my art so whether that is takes the form of a social experiment or a piece of writing or a mural on a wall or you know just sharing how I'm feeling at any given time like I really just feel like I have to like get it out Mm, because it mm -hmm, feels mm -hmm. it just there's like it feels I don't like how it feels inside you know and so for a long time and maybe because of therapy for many years and you know just getting older and all these things like i feel a little bit more at ease with that now over the last couple years yeah but i think for many years i just had to get it out and i think that was at times messy Mm -hmm. and i'm okay with that too you know but like it was a little messy maybe a little uncomfortable, a little like inappropriate at times. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for it because it, it, uh, you know, I learned from it, I grew from it, but um, now I do feel like a little bit more of like a sacredness with my life versus like my online like kind of life. So, um, you know, I think it's just a journey that we're all on when it comes to this stuff, you know, what it means to have some sort of an audience, but also like still retain Mm-hmm. a sense of your own identity that no one else has to know about a sense of your own relationships that no one has to like know everything about yeah. and I think I've gotten better at that for sure um, but you know there are times where I just want to wow out and just like whatever like and it's just and share and do this and whatever you know and there's times where I want to like fall back Yeah. and I don't know it is about trying to honor it I think and listen to it and honor it yeah. rather than fight it one of the things that our mutual friend Mari said, I think on this podcast too, that has really stuck with me about sharing is the importance of 
sharing when things are actually processed because mm. sometimes when it's unprocessed it can it's not really like productive to anybody because yeah. it, it it's still like i don't know i guess like in the feelings of it all and it hasn't been polished and i'm i don't think that that's always like the case that we shouldn't share until things are fully processed because there are people i admire right now who are in the thick of like recovery for example and they're deciding to share it yeah, as they yeah, go yeah. with guidance and like still in a very thoughtful way but i do love like be like witnessing people in the middle of their journey or in the mm -hmm. mess of the journey as well because it's just like it's just a reminder that we all are always that this is kind of like the noon of our life and that's where we kind of exist the most and if that's the case then like it's it's comforting to know someone sees us too for sure for sure for a long time i used to really kind of like uh i would write about you know like maybe a breakup or a heartbreak i was going through and yeah. i would be posting it as i was going and like i said that was messy and i think at times maybe um you know i look back and i'm a little like Ugh. like i cringe a little bit at some of that but it's what i had to do at the time and i think the process of writing and making the art um, like helped me process the actual event or the feelings mm -hmm. I was kind of going through. Um, and for that, I'm thankful, but it doesn't always have to be posted though, you know? <laughs> and that's where you kind of like- And we love the younger versions of ourselves yeah. who like felt, but I also will honor that like, it didn't always have to be posted, but posting didn't mean the same thing as it does today. Yeah, yeah Because yeah. I know that like, for example, my journey on the internet um, started really fast and intense as soon as I actively started using it and I there was like one post of mine that that like stated a dr my dream my dream at the time that went very very viral mm -hmm. and that kind of like skyrocketed my work into where it is but I um sometimes I'll tell Adam like I don't think that I would I would not feel comfortable posting that yeah, today yeah, yeah, like yeah. I did then because then the, the, the landscape and the culture on the internet was like a lot more loving, a lot more supportive. When something went viral, it was like on Good Morning America for days and we laughed and we rejoiced. And yeah. like the, the initial thing that people would feel for the most part was like, kindness and joy and i think now because so because people feel so disconnected from themselves that that ends up being a projection that mm. we see you think like, people feel more disconnected from themselves now than they maybe they did or uh, like an online version of themselves like i think i think them their actual selves because we invest so much in connecting ourselves to our online self. So it's like highly curated. So it's like weird, for yeah, example, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure you've had this experience where like sometimes you'll be familiar with somebody's presence online, but then when you meet them in person and how totally like the, the reaction, it's not even that how different they are because you know, we're all a little bit different, obviously, like because we're more human, we're our, our yeah. more human selves. But I think what can end up being drawing for me sometimes is that like when you realize that they're there's a lot of work that goes into like the online person yes, yes. that you don't really see. And so it's 
I mean, it's it's curated and sometimes it's very manufactured and sometimes it's more authentic and it's not like to pass judgment or anything like that, but it's sometimes, um, anyway, that's why I think that we are it can more be startling, disconnected. Yeah. For sure, you know, it stops you in your tracks. My, It's interesting because for the same for me, you know, my first like um, adventure in like what it means to be like online was about 10 years ago when I did this project, 40 Days of Dating that went viral back then. And it's like a hundred internets ago at this point, you yeah. know, like that was a blog yeah. that went viral. Like that just 100 doesn't- A hundred internets ago. Yeah, like it doesn't happen anymore yeah. in that way. But, you know, suddenly like that was a project that we kind of were processing in real time. Me and my my good friend Jessica Walsh and uh, co-creator of this project, like we, you know, we both came from these like opposite relationship problems. At the time, I was a commitment phobe. She was the exact opposite. She was always looking for one. We were good friends. We kind of made this pact to like quote unquote date each other for forty days, and as a social experiment. As a social experiment with rules, like we had to see a couple's therapist together weekly. We had to go on like we had to see each other every day for the 40 days. We had to go on a weekend trip together. We had to fill out this form that we kind of created every single day, which were these like eight questions. Like, did you see Jessica today? How do you feel about things? What do you want to do differently? Blah, blah, blah. And that was like, and then we created this website where she's on the left, I'm on the right each day. And you see how two people like experience, you know, like how they process an experience completely different. Um, and we rolled it out daily. It was like this kind of like, you know, <laughs> like each day for like the, the, that whole summer. And it went viral. We were on like, you know, we were on like NBC Today show and suddenly like, you know, 500,000 people were like reading it each day. And we were like, you know, meeting with movie stars who wanted to turn it into a movie. We ended up like, you know, optioning it to Warner Brothers. And it was so wild because suddenly it was just like, I, I was like maybe a couple years out of school at that point. You know, and I just started working for myself. I was doing, you know, illustrations and commercial artwork and stuff, but to be like just thrown into it. And it was, so I saw all of it happening, you know, around me, like the conversation, the, but there was a lot of like support about it. And there was a lot of, but it, it to be like, it really broke down a wall that maybe for a while wasn't healthy for me, but I just was like, oh, like, I can do this. I can write about anything I want. I can talk about any trauma that I've ever experienced. I can talk about, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, it gave me liberation to kind of go deeper in my art um, because of that experience that maybe for a while wasn't healthy, but also like ultimately, I think, um, I don't know, it really kind of shaped and molded who I was as an artist. And it's also really cool that relationships are such a core part of like your work your relationship with yourself or platonic relationships or romantic relationships and this experiment seems to be like the way that you really put that to the test and i'm curious how what role like the platonicness of it all yeah actually played in whether in either clearing up the lenses or fogging them up a little bit. As you mean that project back then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the time I was a commitment phobe. Like I was just like a couple years out of school. I was living in New York. I just wanted to, I was a fuck Define boy. Define a commitment I was a fuck boy. boy. Yes, the <laughs> commitment boy. Commitment <laughs> We've phobe. come a yeah. long way, yeah. North. Yeah. But I, you know, and I still, I call myself a recovering misogynist. Like Define I feel, that in your terms. In my terms, it's just about what it means to be socialized in this 
you know, and conditioned as, I mean, we all are, but as a straight man in this country, yeah, like everything, like if I'm going to be honest about, you know, that I, for instance, like, you know, play into white supremacy as a white person, right? Then how can I not be honest that like I'm a misogynist and that it, it, the intersections of race and gender all play into each other. So I'm, it's something I've always constantly thought about. Um, but I think most men in this country, like if they look at themselves in the mirrors, they would have to be honest with themselves about how like we play into these kind of things and how, you know, especially with the media we consume so much, you know, all of it is like, just and the and our families and the things we were taught, the postures and behaviors we were taught, you know, as boys, like of course, like I grew up calling women like hoes and bitches, but then I would also like love my mom or whatever because that's what the Tupac album told me. Like all the rap rappers that I admire when I was a kid, because I didn't have a father in the house, and like I was always looking for like rock stars and rap stars to be like my dad, and they all had like that one song that was like about the girls that were on tour, and then the one song about their mom, <laughs> and wow, like yeah. you know, and you start to think about women in those ways, mm. you know, and I think it's why you still have you see these conversations around sex workers these days where people can't like get it wrapped around their head that like sex work is real work and these people are humans and like mm -hmm. you know it's like. I think all of that is about so much of like the stories that were taught as kids um, through like our media consumption. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. What are you talking about? Really? Yeah. Hey, I'm Nor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. I've spent the last few years examining a more personal narrative about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for answers, the more questions I had. So I experimented. I examined one of the most traumatic tragedies in my family's history, a news event that dominated American airwaves in April 1986. During the journey, something extraordinary happened. The stories I thought I knew intimately were still alive. I learned that controlling a narrative instead of being curious about it is exactly the dynamic I was examining to begin with. What I found was a fuller exploration of the ever-evolving story of America. I always felt like America stole me from myself. I've always felt like that's what America does, is it steals people from themselves and it replaces themselves with a myth. How do we get to the point where you are okay sitting next to, sitting with a story that is not your own just because? My intention with Rep is to challenge the concept of the value of representation. Our guides include experts, academics, artists, actors, names you already know. And in our conversations, we bounce around through American history and culture and witness our present and future unfold, and then find out how these stories affect us all. 
This podcast examines our culture through the lens of three Ps, politics, pop culture, and public opinion. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. So this, that journey of becoming a recovering misogynist, how did it start and how did how did you intend for it to start? And then how did you know it really started because the mm. world around you started to change or the people around you started to react to your journey? Mm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, like I grew up in an all black neighborhood until I was like 12 or 13. And so as a little white kid, like thinking about, like most white kids aren't thinking about race in these ways. But I was because I was, it was all around me. You know, I would be with my family all the time. And then suddenly like all the friends in my neighborhood were black and the conversations we were having were so much different. And I remember when we, I was like seven, we were like playing outside and this kid goes like, he goes like, uh, you're like a black kid or something like that. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, I never really thought about that I was anything. Like I never really thought about uh, color or race at that point, but he, he was already. And that was so fascinating for me. It really stuck with me. And of course, like I would see how the police would come to my neighborhood and harass the older kids or break up. We were playing football games on the streets and they would come and like break it up. And like there was all, and I would see drug deals all happening around me all the time. I would see all this stuff, but it wasn't until, so, and like I read like the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was like 16, like white kids aren't doing this kind of stuff, you know? So, so suddenly like, Years later, when I start to think about gender and like I start to think about like what kind of omission or, you know, there's so many blind spots that maybe people understand about race, but they don't understand about gender. But if you start to think about the intersections of it all, how could, if I can, like I said earlier, like if I can admit and understand my role as a white person in the society and how I play into white supremacy, then why wouldn't I understand how I, how the same way with gender and how I play into misogyny all the time. So it started to make, you know, and you read books like the autobiography of Malcolm X and you see the glaring misogyny that's happening mm. while he understands, you know, the, and, but he talks so profoundly about race. So then you start to connect these things for me at least and have conversations with women with non-binary folks, with all kinds of different people. And you start to, like, it just became very clear to me. Was there a first conversation that really propelled you onto this journey? Um, I mean, I think when I read like Bell Hooks, like All About Love, which mm -hmm. I'm constantly rereading for many years. I think when I read that, like, um, maybe it was like 10 years ago, the first time I read it, that really started to like, and a friend gave me that. Um, but that project, 40 Days, Days of Dating, that really like, you know, I had to like think about, cause I did get criticism because of it. What kind of criticism? Well, just that like, oh, I was a little bit of like a folk boy and a player and like, you know, some people just didn't like my attitude about things. And I was playing a role like I, and I really had to like, question myself, you know? And I think because it was so public back then, it made me kind of want to dig deeper. Um, and like, you kind of come to like a crossroads or like, am I gonna be this guy or like, who you am I really? You actively thought about that yeah. then? Yeah, because it hurt. Because anytime someone's criticizing you publicly, 
it hurts. Mm. So you can like choose to get defensive or you can like, you know, be thankful for the call out and, and tuck your tail between your legs and, you know, and do some work. Mm. Um, and that's what, I, you know, I was able to do, I think. And I'm always, I'm constantly trying to like, you know, do that. Like it never ends. So I, recovering, you know, because we still play it. Like, I still feel like, you know, I listen to a Drake song and I get, you know, like whatever. <laughs> like it's, we're all kind of like have to recover constantly from it. Yeah. So take me on the path of you beginning to ask those questions to it sometimes manifesting into your illustrations. Yeah. I mean, I don't see it. Like, I think all art is political, you know, whether you know it or not. Like, if you're not constantly kind of like thinking about. So I get to exist without being politicized, right? Because I'm just a white straight man in this society. So if I'm, I just think that like, if I'm not constantly thinking about what role I'm playing, and that could be in any, so that could be in the kind of space I'm taking up in any given you know, area, or um, it could be about what kind of jobs I'm taking, what kind of, what kind of brand I'm upholding. Uh, you know, if I'm also not thinking about like, I'm writing something on a wall and this could be like misinterpreted the wrong way, or this could offend someone who's marginalized. If I'm not like actively like thinking about that, then what am I doing? You know, like as an artist, like, we're in the business of consequence, you know? Like we're making work that is seen by the public, that is consumed by the public, whether that's a product, whether that's a piece of, you know, public art or installation, whether it's a book you're reading, any of these things I'm making, like, so how how am I, what, what's my role in all this? Like, you can't tell me like, oh no, I'm just, I just make things and it's fine. No, like this stuff matters. Um, and so it's a constantly kind of playing. And so sometimes that will come out in very blatant ways, whether I'm writing something on the side of a wall that's talking about, you know, racism or gender or something, or it could just comes out in the way I'm like conducting business, you know, and thinking about that. Tell me more about that. What conducting? Like, yeah. How, how is it when you're asking yourself, what is the role that I'm playing in this problem? Which is one of my favorite yeah. consistent questions to be asking, especially right now. How are you able to ask that from the inside out? Because you engage in both your personal art and also commercial art, but yeah. the lines are blurred in that. Like you have a very intimate, distinct style. So what are kind of the sub questions in that? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, like we all have to start wherever we are, right? And sometimes for a person, like I always say, you don't have to make work in order to do the work, you know, because I think a lot of like artists or designers or whatever, like they think they have to like make a project that's about this stuff or whatever. But it's also like, just talk to your racist cousin. Like, you know what I mean? Like just talk. <laughs> but that's harder sometimes. It really <laughs> no, of is. Of course, of course. It's extremely hard. And I'm not. It's not saying that it's like better or worse. It's just like that. It's almost like, and I feel this myself sometimes, it's almost easier to like make the really risky work and put it out there than like face a loved one yeah. face to face and be like, we need to have this talk because it's like, you don't know which way the conversation is gonna go. And if the it's conversation hard. goes one way, like you're, how does your relationship come back from that? You know? Yeah, and I don't know, like for me, I'm willing to risk that relationship 
you know? Every time. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think there can be a certain level of like respect and tact that comes with these conversations, of course. And if someone's going to walk away from you because of that, well, maybe they shouldn't be in your life then anyways. You know, I don't know, like. Something I've been thinking about too, about that in that actual regard of like, you're willing to, you know, potentially sacrifice a relationship is it's less about like trying to change the way people think because we can't control people. We can't change people, but it's like letting yourself be known in your truest form and in your truest integrity and knowing that like you're willing to risk a relationship because like you've gotten, you've worked so hard to become like to be in that place where you don't feel like you have to, or you're not willing to like, appease another person who may be saying things or doing things that are harmful exactly and it's like i think everyone has to make their own kind of calls on that so i would never pass judgment on it's a very uh hard thing to do but it's also like you can like we've talked about before like my brother i love him to death he's like a bill maher democrat right like talk to those people yeah you know because you there's a lot of common ground of course and you can like I think you could, those kind of relationships can help, like, can be steered in certain ways, you know? Not that you're trying to, like, um, manipulate someone, of course, but it is, you know, important to kind of, like, I think have those lively discussions with people who see things differently in those ways. Um, but also, like, you know, like, years ago, I started um, in, like, 2018 because I, I get asked to speak a lot at, confer- like, design and ad and art conferences all over the world. And I started like, you know, really every time I was getting asked to speak or be a, do a workshop or whatever, I said, you know, I, I wouldn't agree to, to do it unless they showed me who was speaking, you know, that they were making sure to have, you know, people of color, to have black people, you know, to have people from the LGBTQ community on these. Cause you, you find yourself speaking at these conferences and it's mm-hmm. the same old fucking dusty white guys speaking and I get it like a lot of these places like they have to like fill seats and get people and you know and they put whatever big name that people know but there's so much more that they could be doing and do you should be sharing these people's stories and sharing their work and so I've started putting my foot down I wouldn't agree to be a part of these things unless they were actively making it inclusive you Mm -hmm. know and you can call that whatever inclusive writer or whatever but like so it was very important for me to do these things. And I bought out many times because they couldn't commit, you know? And so you do have to like, I think, I feel a responsibility as someone who has, um, you know, an audience in my little world, my community um, to, you know, put my foot down and like, you know, put your money where it's at, at times, you know? Yeah. And so, and that's also been about various campaigns I've been a part of, you know? Um, you have to, because you don't, even if you come at it with good intention and then suddenly you find yourself on the other end and you're like, wow, they picked like five white people. And now here I am looking like an idiot, you know, mm. it's like, and then someone's calling me out cause I didn't active, you know, and I didn't even mean anything by it, but because I wasn't actively, you know, pushing. So I think it ha- this stuff has to start from the curators, you know, and start from the inside out and push onto these kind of people who, um, you know, are like creating these kind of spaces. Mm-hmm. We have to push on them more. So, 
Yeah. I mean, it's I it it's also that once you do that, even if you have to bow out this time, you're putting mm-hmm. like you're planting a seed for the next time and opening doors. Like you don't even know what the ripple effects of that are. Yeah. But people don't forget that kind of request. And we also make that effort as well. And it's just like you're holding people accountable. Exactly. And I also think that so for a while, I used to, um, a couple times, I remember I posted like uh, online, I posted like the email I would send to people because I wanted to like really inspire oh, other yeah. white guys. Yeah, that's a other, great way to share that. To think about this stuff. And like, because I think a lot of times people don't know exactly how to do it or whatever. And so just saying, listen, and I also posted a couple times where it worked. I mean, it worked many times, but I would post like how it would work and the emails and stuff. So it was just like, you know, I want people to more people who look like me to be thinking about this stuff when they're saying yes or, you know, kind of deciding on what to do Mm. because it's a massive problem, of course, you know, and it's also just like so boring. Yeah, I was just going to say also, (laughs) too, like, yes, the big names, like the people want to put people in seats or whatever, but it's also like it always ends up being a better series of stories because the stories are always more powerful when you're tapping into people who have had to sit with their stories and who have to, who had, who've had to sit with the question of like, who are you over and over and over again? I always think about that. Like Mm. I know that my approach to storytelling and journalism and asking questions is what it is because like I have had to really consider who am I and what is my point of view in this world and what are my stories in this world and what are the questions that I'm asking? And the question I would always ask before a story is, and how is the way that I'm telling the story or sharing the story going to impact the communities or the people Mm. I'm talking about or trying to be of service to? Because that's the only way that you'll actually like be a fair and objective storyteller. It's once you yourself know what your point of view is in the world and why you see it that way. And when you haven't had to interrogate that, everybody is welcome to and everybody has the ability to interrogate their own stories. But typically when you are a part of, when you're a part of the non-dominant community or identity or whatever you want to call it, you're not having to think about it as much. But I think that ask prompting people with those questions and that responsibility is a great way to have people interrogate their own their own approach to their work and their own approach approach to how they show up in the world interrogate is such a good word i i use that word a i love lot that lately. yeah yeah because it's, it's also like in the essence of the word itself you are it it's more of a feeling it's more of a digging and excavating yeah, yeah, and yeah. it is like a holding a like a spotlight on exactly you're so good at this like i'm just so honored to be here with you right (laughs) now like your work is so important in the world like it's like you do the real work hi there noor here from at your service at your service is a storytelling company we tell stories as a form of service and the way i think about it is story first medium second Meaning, we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, 
a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. You're also doing very important work and I really appreciate how honest you're being and how open you're being because like that's the thing is, I don't know, as you know, you know that I've like kind of recently started painting and really Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) like realizing what the power of like putting something onto a canvas and not just the actual like art itself that ends up being there, but the action of moving your body in a way where you're like tapping into flow and you're kind of having downloads to process like the world that we're living in. It, yeah. It's like being an artist, however you want to define that word, like, and I'm using it right now in the most universal sense of the word where like everyone can be an artist and we need people to approach life as artists. Um, it really, it makes the it makes all of our work feel really important because the more personalized I believe it is, like the more you're willing to put yourself into your work mm-hmm. and to let us know you, the, the more expansive you create a space for people to know themselves and for people to be like, wait, yeah. I can do that too, or I can tell, I can share this too. And I think when it comes to books specifically, which you just published your first memoir yeah you've published graphic books, memoir graphic memoir you've published books before i always think it's forever and it is so like i, I feel like i'm reading like your te- <laughs> your blue bubbles like your text messages yeah, like your personal i've put it all on the table you really put it out all on the table and i i think a lot about how like how do people make the decision to do that because when oftentimes when you are telling your truthiest truth it's you're not the only character in the story yeah and so you're also sharing a lot about other people um and there's you know there's when we speak about like the work that we do has consequences like even especially that has consequences so i want to know like what was your process in approaching telling your story through this medium but also telling this story in such an intimate way? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, firstly, what you were saying before, like I just want to touch on, um, I think that like always like sharing uh, one's like personal story um, through art is a form of activism always, you know, because it really allows like us to connect to other like lonely souls in the world. And that's really like on a human level, like what I always want to do. And so for me, I don't know at whatever point that I was able to like really break down those walls and not, you're always going to care and you're always going to be afraid. I don't believe in being like fearless or anything, but like you're always going to have that, but you really get to a point where you just, you don't 
like it, it's not going to prohibit you from doing what you need to do from screaming out from the rooftops like whether it's your heartbreak or whether it's your love mm. or your loneliness and um and so going there is important for me because i know what it's going to do for me and it's going to do for others mm. like i don't feel like a, a story is worth telling unless you really give it all and, and go there with it so and I've, that's just always been how I like the art that I've admired in my my life the, the specifically music that's mm -hmm. my biggest music books movies they're always going there you know and they're always like making me feel less lonely and so it's just it's I don't know second nature for me to to, to do that but of course there's consequences it's difficult I mean listen any memoir that's ever been written, all the millions of them in the world, like they're about other people. And so you have to figure out like how to tell your story, your experience, your point of view without like, it was very important for me to like do that without, you know, in making sure that I'm not like, there's no character assassination, especially in like the love interest in the story, that there's no, you know, outing someone, you know, that no one can like figure out who this person is by their name or their career or their horoscope sign, whatever, you know, like I really wanted to like make sure that, that, uh, and that was something that was important with my editor as well, you know, um, but it's my story to tell, Yeah. you know, and, and what's the cost of not telling that? Like what, you know, what am I going to have to pay for that? Um, what and, could the cost be? Well, I mean, like if you didn't get this book out, yeah, what would your insides look like today? They, this whole journey for writing this book was so important to me because, um, like I said, like I have to get these things in, out, and if I don't, I I feel just I I don't know I feel like I want to scream, you know, it's really important for me, um, and so even just the act of trying to get the book made. Mm -hmm. Even if it hadn't gotten made, I would have been cool in a lot of ways. But I had to make the proposal, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I had to start with just, like, the audacity of trying. <laughs> and so that's all that actually mattered. If I didn't get to make the book because no one wanted to make it or I didn't think it was a story worth telling, like, I could have lived with that. But it was, I tried. The audacity of trying. Yeah. So that's all, you know? Um now, there's more consequences, of course, because I write about in this book, listen, I've, I've talked about things with my mother and various projects, um, social experiments, things that I've done over the years. She's, ne she's never happy about it. <laughs> she's a very private person. And I've talked a lot about our child, my childhood. And Tell me about a conversation that you guys would have about it, though, because I like mm -hmm. a lot of our parents. I feel like most of our parents are pretty private people and mm -hmm. like are terrible. Even when I talk about writing a book to like my family, they're like, well, yeah, what, like, yeah. what are you trying to say? Yeah, the, it's a very difficult conversation uh, for me. It's about making her feel seen, of course, understanding her point of view, but also like standing my ground. Yeah. You know, and listen it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like if this person's going to like walk away from you because they don't want you to tell your story, well, what, what's the value of that relationship then? You know, like it's very difficult because, but thankfully I don't, my, my mother is not going to risk losing her son over this. Mm. Um, That's and a I'm, really interesting thing to say though. Yeah. Like even putting, putting it in that frame. Yeah. And like, listen, 
if it really came to that and she was like, I'll never talk to you again if you write this book. Well, of course I would come into like a real, like I would have to, uh, you know. There's another layer of work that goes Yeah, whether or not I'm gonna actually do this or not. But I have a good relationship with my mom. So I'm not like, the story that she is not, there's nothing I'm talking about that's damaging about her per se, but I talk a lot about my stepfather in the book mm. and about how he abused me mm. and about things, some of the things I went through as a kid and how that like further, like, you know, how that kind of like shaped my view of love and relationships and women in my, my teenage years and my twenties, um, going back to that, like, you know, everything we were talking about before. Um, and so I talk a lot about that. She's, you know, she feels it looks, you know, poorly on her. I have that conversation with her. I also feel like I need to do what I need to do and I'm doing it in a sincere way. And that, you know, you get to, you, you agree to disagree and she's still gonna support me, of course. She doesn't love it, um, but she gets it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, explain to her my point of view about these things. There's also a, a legal situation about talking about someone who's alive, mm -hmm. putting, you know, uh, putting things out there like a person abused me or something like that. You know, there's conversations with uh, Simon and Schuster about, you know, if this happens or this happens, what this is how we handle it or whatever. So there's uh, there's all kinds of actual like things like that that I'm sure many people writing memoirs um, about different people have to kind of like, yeah. you have to have those, you know, you have to face those things and have those conversations. And then um, it's out. But shit gets real. Yeah. Yeah, it's real, you know? And I also have to think about how my brothers who I have strong relationships with, that's their dad, my stepfather, you know? Like there's a lot of things that um, can <laughs> can get real and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but I ha it's my story. And it's so much a part of the makeup of who I am. Um, and it, it's so much a part. You can't tell the stories later on without telling that first. Mm. you know and so that's really wow do you really feel that yeah of course how can i talk about i'm a recovering misogynist or that i've been a fuck boy or whatever or because i was so scared of relationships without talking about abuse i suffered at when i was a kid without talking about you know how my stepfather and my mother were in this horrible marriage and relationship that didn't show love didn't show real communication didn't show support so i grew up seeing that as a young boy mm -hmm. you know and so how of course that's going to affect how i think about relationships going for further you know in my teenage years and my 20s of course it's going to affect you know me equating love or relationships with like you know, some sort of inevitable heartbreak that's gonna end in soul-sucking divorce or something. Of course, mm -hmm. I'm gonna think that it's a weakness and I'm gonna like hide behind my armor as a man and masculinity to say, I'm too good for that or I'm too busy for that or whatever, you know, of course. Uh, so I have to tell that. And, and then it takes a lot of proactivity, a lot of work for many years, a lot of therapy. Shout out to my therapist. <laughs> why is doing the work and why is going to therapy worth it for you today? Uh, cause, I, Cause I really just wanna, I wanna see and be seen as much as possible, mm. you know? And I wanna, I wanna, um, I wanna affirm my humanity. Mm. And I think as the act of creating art um, is about that in a lot of ways. Yeah. However you define, you know, the art. 
I mean, creating art as an affirmation of your humanity and then you look at your art and it literally feels and looks like a stream of consciousness. So I would love to hear about, one, how you found your design and your approach and then like translate this to me in your own, in, in like what it, what it, how, translate this to us in a way that explains like how you see it. Because mm. my, the way my eyes are looking at it, and of course, whoever the viewer of your, of your art is, is going to see it differently. But like, I'm, I really want to know in the most intimate sense, like, what is this language? I just want to tell the audience that like the way you're looking at all my art right now is just so <laughs> it's so wonderful. Like just like well, we did get like know, a really good so backdrop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, we are in front of this backdrop. Of, it like, is like the, my whole, yeah. you like beautifully curated some of the most beautiful pieces, and then of course like there's a little basketball hoop on the actual frame. <laughs> you know, when I came here, I asked Tina the first time. I was like, um, so where can we get one of those? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I only just got one recently. It was like <laughs> after a year. Um, how to translate it? You know, it's really hard. Like I'm a huge. Um, so I'm. Uh, Keith Haring was is a massive inspiration of mine, mm -hmm. artist from the '80s, um, and he said something like, um, like, like something like, after all, like. I always just figured art was for community. It was to like, you know, um, further the conversation and culture, mm -hmm. you know? And so I've always just thought about it like that from like a, from a high point of view. Um, but the actual like doing of it is just like jazz to me. It's like freestyle hip hop or something. It's just like both the way I write and the way I draw, it really just has to come out first with like an urgency like mm. you learn over years you're you put your ten thousand hours in or whatever you know i come from i went to sva here in new york city i had a graphic design you know bfa uh, i worked in branding early on a book jacket designer i come from like a strong graphic design background so everything i've like learned and and as far as like typography i've been like formally trained in all these things but you know, you learn the rules to break them, you know? So then it kind of really comes out like as rhythm, as music for me. So you put your hours in, you put your time in, um, and at some point you get good at just getting it out quickly, even if it's a sketch and you build on those blocks. So I have to just get it out all the time. And then I kind of shape it from there. You know, um, so it's like a jazz musician learning his chord. You, you have a set chord of changes and then you kind of, you can go anywhere from there. You know, I just, that's the way I think about it. So wait, but so, okay. I love, thank you so much for sharing all of this. And yeah. like, I'm, I am sorry that I, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. So when you're getting it out, like I, sometimes I feel like that's like the hardest part. Like, mm. how do you not wait? for the urgency to build up. But here's the difference. Because I wait for the urgency to build up and then I'm just like so sad and so low. And yeah, then I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like creeping in. And I'm just like, wait, this is very dramatic. It takes a lot of time. So tell me the difference. But this is the difference. We're different people, we're different artists, right? You have to tap in to your behaviors as a human. For me, mm. I am a <laughs> profoundly impatient person. Mm. So I let that play out into my art. So that's why I start. I started drawing so fast because I wanted to get done so I could go home. <laughs> so you let that dictate your style. 
like it always just made sense to me from the get oh my gosh timothy this is this is your <laughs> professor side coming because you also teach at the school you went to this is that okay great continue please yeah so so early on when i did my first mural in, in 2010 i was still working full-time um i just had to get it out quickly because and i just took i just used a, a paint marker because it just seemed like the quickest tool. We love a paint marker. Yeah, and so it wasn't about like, oh, this is gonna be the beginning of a career, and like, I just really uh, love a paint marker. It was just like, oh, I wanna get this out quickly and do this fast. What's the quickest way to do this? I don't wanna use a, like, a, like a brush. Mm -hmm. Like I wanna draw it quick, you know? And so I used a paint marker, and it was hard, and it was laborsome, and it took me three days to do this mural that would now take me like six hours or something. And I cried, but I never felt more stimulated, like physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And I walked away saying like, how do I make this, like, the, how do I take this feeling and make it happen for the rest of my life? You know? And so we have to latch on to those kind of questions. Um, but I just let my own sensibilities, my impatience, like, you know, drive my style. And then I, you know, just kept doing it and doing it and doing it until it got more, refined um and eventually you get to a place where i think you can just um you can just work off of it quickly you know well what role does evolution play in that process so of course like as you're evolving you're be you're it's becoming more refined but is that sensibility that you're tapping into something that's like innate in you the most natural truest part of you not going to change but everything around it kind of changes or are you, as you're evolving, do you feel like for you that shows up in your work as well? For sure, because at this point, I can sit down and make a 200 page book and take takes me a year and I'm constantly kind of editing and refining things. And um, so it's not all obviously happening, happening so frantic, but we're also different, you know, like you brought up my lovely, incredible, beautiful girlfriend, Tina, who, you know, she works in such a wildly different way than me, mm. you know? Like she needs to like come into the art studio and like light a candle and play some music and, you know, like meditate and smoke a joint and like, you know, get into this like holistic place. And then finally like, you know, you know start painting and then maybe she's not feeling it, you know, where I just like, in like a tornado and I push through, I don't care. I could be having a good day or a bad day or whatever. And I just like have to like do it. And, and you can tap into that at any point. Like, is that flow for you or is that work for you? Or like, what is it? Well, of course there's times where it's just work. You know, I do things like we all do things to make a living and- But you, you never feel blocked in that approach? Um, I don't know, you know, like, of course there's times I feel blocked, but it truly is only about like feeling burned out like if I'm just like, been taking on too much okay. and my schedule has been, you know, and I don't feel like I'm in a good creative place just because I'm not sleeping well and like I have a lot of stress. Those are times that I feel blocked. Um, it's interesting that you've isolated like the block as that too, though, because like even as I'm thinking about my own blocks, I'm like, oh, that's like it, it's like not about it being a block. It's about. Like sometimes you're going so hard and then you're a little yeah. burnt out and tired and like you just can't tap into you it. You can't tap into you it. You can't always. You don't want to tap into it. Yeah. And you're just like, but I had this teacher when I was in design school, he said something that 
still resonates with me to the day. He, he said, there's no such thing as a creative block. If you hit a wall, you just turn around and go a different way. And it just always made so much sense to me. And it always just made me think like, okay, if, yeah, if I'm hitting a wall, it's just, this is not the right way. What else is there? What are the option B, C, D, E, F? What if I just need to like write poetry for two hours and it, mm, you know, to mm -hmm. get things out? What if I just need to journal? What if I just need to draw a bunch of shapes or something? I don't know, you know, like there's so many different ways for me to express myself that I, I can just try. Yeah. And I'm not worried about what the outcome necessarily is. It's just for me, you know. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. On a really clear, great day at the studio, what is making things look like to you? What's that process? I mean, really, it could be so many things. It just depends on... I'm really, I work at, with deadlines really well. So mm -hmm. it really is about that in so many ways. If I, if I have nothing, no deadlines and it's an open week, yeah, it could just be coming here and working on some canvases that, you know, some ideas that I've been really thinking about that I want to get out and see how they look. Um, it could be just sitting down. I really like to just sit down and write. Like I'm a big, like I journal, I write poems. And when you're journaling and writing, is your handwriting like your font? No, so so sorry. I when I'm writing, it's just on the. I just write it on notes app. I haven't written in a journal like journal for oh. like twelve years. Really? So okay. even in my book where I have journals, it's all notes app. The, that came from my notes app, and we then I just wrote it. Yeah, yeah. I just I have so many tears in my notes. It's actually a great journal. Yeah, the notes app. I have a journal folder in my notes. And app. you write. No, but I fill actual pen to paper. I have my journal with me like all the time. Like an actual physical journal. Yeah. This you, morning I journaled with a Sharpie and I was- Maybe I really should start doing this. It's because I didn't have a pen on me. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, what? I, <laughs> I am interviewing Timothy today. So I guess this is like perfect timing. You, but, should, you should share that with us, Nora. Oh, definitely not sharing that journal <laughs> today. I, I had a lot to get out, but it um, pen to paper. So- have you've heard of morning pages, the artist's way? Yes, yes. So that's why I do pen to paper. And so I started doing that. I, at the beginning of 2021 or 2022, which I know is dramatically different because whatever, one to two years. Um, anyway, I have filled like almost 20 journals and I wow. never thought I could, by the way. Like I was the type of person who, when I grew up and I was writing in journals, 
I would like burn them because mm. I was afraid someone was going to find them. Like oh I would write gosh. and then I would tear the pages out and I just, I could never do it. And then I was just kind of like, well, I'm not afraid anybody's going to be going through my journals and <laughs> until I'm dead. And so, um, let's just like see what it, what it feels like. Yeah. And it's such a clearing practice because there's also this notion of like not writing in your journal for like, as if, while thinking about anybody reading it is very freeing. And then also um, like just taking up physical space. Like my hand, mm. sometimes it'll be like two sentences that fit on one page because I write so big because I have something to get out yeah, like that. Yeah, like yeah. it's so messy and like I could probably, I, I rarely ever am able to read it afterwards, but it's just the process of like actually releasing. But that's also why, I mean, it's not about you should or shouldn't do it. I think that there's you you do do it because you're putting pen to paper you're putting ink to paper you're putting sharpie to canvas like that's all that but if for the messiness and for the act of actively taking up space and and I also am just always trying to do whatever I can to not be on my phone yeah 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 <laughs> like that's no, just like that's the phase smart. that I'm in right now and yeah. it's not a good thing or a bad thing it's just like what I need for myself is like as for little sure. phone time screen time that's as amazing possible. I so haven't done great. that I did that all like. I did that all through college. I have so many incredible like notebooks and sketchbooks filled with notes. Oh, so you've already engaged and, in that practice. Oh yeah, for so many years. Um, but a notes app is also amazing. Yeah, I really. I mean, a notes app is like sometimes if I if I feel like the download is coming too quickly, mm. I do a notes app because I can type on my phone faster than I can write yeah, pen yeah, to yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah. So all I know is Adam, you better stay away from those notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> No one read Nora's notebooks. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I, I I trust that. Also, I don't think Adam would want to ever read my journals. He's like, no, I'm. I hear your journal downloads before and after and everything in between. Do you ever read any of them? I used to. I did while I was working on rep because I I would get really when I have really big breakthroughs in my journal. It actually tends to be in the very beginning of using the journal and the very end. In the middle, is just chaos. Yeah. But um. So I'll go back to like the biggest downloads that I've had, which end up being like 10 pages towards the end. And it, and it just is so dramatic and whatever. I'm saying that right now because I didn't archive one of my journals yet because mm. I want to reread the breakthrough that I had because the breakthrough that I had relates to the next investigation that I'm doing. So mm. that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I love reading, like sometimes Tina and I will read out loud to each other. More often me, I'll just like, I wanna read this to you out loud and I'll stand up and I'll just like read it. But it's, I love the act of just sharing it that way. It's so, it's so, it's, it's such a quick too, way. It's poetic too, that way too. Yeah, and it's such a quick way to feel humility and I'm kind of always looking for that in some way. It's a definitely a great way to get humility. Me, me and Adam have a rule where unless I really am so insistent on reading him something I wrote, he's like the Jerry Seinfeld rule, which is What's like that? not letting anybody read your writing until at least the next day. Because when mm. you're so into in the emotion and like the person's reaction is not what you yeah, want, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. hurtful. So you come in, you journal. And then how do we get from a blank canvas to... A not a very not blank one. Well, I have all sorts of ideas that I'm always kind of uh, jotting down. You know, it could be. So I'm I've always like I'm making things or writing things, and then I also just make a list of like the things I've made or the things I'm 
in the process of making or the things I want to make because then it helps me kind of like helps just my brain think about um, like if I like I have to have my second gallery show probably by the end of the year Um, so now that the book is kind of um, been out in the world for the last month and all my events are done now I'm really starting to think like okay what does this gallery show look like how is it different from the one I did in 2021 my first one you know the how is the art different how's the experience different mm-hmm. um what are some i you know different concepts for the show what does that entail have i made anything that might translate to this you know do i want it to just be writings or drawings or a mix or do i want to do color like so i'll start like really just kind of thinking about all that stuff mm-hmm. um also just like a nice day could just be like catching up on emails like it sounds so piff- like pitiful but it's just like you know that like like that inbox is like sitting there and you're just like okay let me just get to this have some tea that clears the space yeah it really does it does you know and then you can let them sit for another two months after (laughs) but you know sometimes it's just so not glamorous at all yeah like that makes you feel like okay i feel good what is your relationship with color because your art is traditionally white and black like yeah. sharpie paint marker what how do we feel about color these well days? i certainly do color you know i just did a mural in um the warby parker store that's all blues oh cool you know or i'll have like one accent color on certain things but how do you feel about it i love it and i just like i just want it to be contained like you start using that. too many colors with my 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 work is already playful in a sense and it's mm-hmm. already lighthearted in some sense in the way it presents so you start introducing a lot of colors, it just becomes like a circus. I can't stand it, you know? And so I'll have like clients and stuff who push for that. I'm like, no, you know? So one nice accent color or a monotone of different yellows or different blues, I think those complement the work really well because mm-hmm. it feels still like sophisticated in some way. Um, but yeah, not, I, don't, I just don't, too many colors is too much. So, but I, I'm not wearing colors now, but I love wearing colors. I'm always wearing bright stuff so i mean i love the yellow accent too that's my color white black and yellow okay great amazing i think yellow works so good with my my work agreed my drawings yeah so so you mentioned keith herring being one of your biggest inspirations and i wanted to ask you about how you feel about artist comparisons and Mm. carrying on the legacy of artists because i think that like most artists are always thinking about other artists that have come before them and there is a lot of copying there is a lot of like taking or adding or continuing in so much work i've been like just deeply going down basquiat's like yeah rabbit hole and he often did that as well so i'm curious to you like how what is your approach yeah and how do you um how do you like to engage in the conversation outside of the artist community as well? Well, you know, I think to you know maybe something for you to think about too. But um, Miles Davis, he said something like, "You have to play a long time to be able to play like yourself," and it's the same shit. It's with making. You have to make a lot of stuff to make stuff like yourself. So be inspired by the greats, by whoever you feel connected to, mm-hmm. make art that looks like theirs. Try to mimic their stuff, you know? Like, I think we all do that in the beginning. You know, try to, but then at some point, 
we build on those foundations, but we have to make it our own, you know? And so someone like Keith Haring was always a massive inspiration um, because of his like line drawing work. But I worked hard to, like he never worked with, you know, lettering or typography or anything in this kind of way. I made hard to make it my own in that sense, you yeah. know? And, um, you know, and then I do all sorts of things like these kind of big wonky letter forms and statements that are nothing like the drawing style that I do in that in in that way. So you have to kind of constantly kind of be making and making and making. And I think you get to a point where it really starts just to become inherently yours. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And it, your voice is your sensibilities and your voice comes through. Um, and sometimes that could just be about the content obviously the style, but you have to just, you have to be willing to kind of go through that and put in those hours and, and you finally come out. So, you know, it's a big thing for me because in my industry, you do see, see a lot of ripping off. You see a lot of co-opting. You know, I just did this Nike shoe um, that came out two months ago for with Kevin Durant. And it was such an incredible experience because I did this basketball court for, for the kids at PS315 in Brooklyn for their school in relation, in partnership with Kevin Durant's Charity Foundation. We did this in 2020, where I drew all over this basketball court um, for this community. That's another thing. It's like when you, art should be accessible and that's the way I think about it. And it's like, you make something for like that, like those kids, will, I walk away, I made this art, those kids get to, that's their court. You know what I mean? They get to tell people I have the dopest basketball court you've ever seen. That's their court. It's their community. It's it's the community's court. And there's a sense of like pride and ownership over the art that has nothing to do with me anymore. Yeah. And it la you know, and I think that's where like- It's an act art of service. Yeah, exactly. And so anyways, to come back, when Kevin Durant's new shoe was to come out, he and Nike came to me to make, to do the art for the shoe because they were inspired by the basketball court that we did together. And that's such a huge thing because you, in my industry, with these massive conglomerates like Nike or whoever, oftentimes they'll just co-op the work. They'll just do it internally. They'll just do some bad, poor version of the work that some independent artist has penetrated the zeitgeist with. Mm. And oftentimes that what that artist can be black or brown or queer, and these co these brands are co-opting their work, you know. And mm. so the fact that Kevin fact that Nike was like, let's go directly to the artist and ask him to do this work uh, was rare and it was incredible, you know? And so, I don't know, I'm kind of going off. I don't remember the, the initial KD15 question. The KD15 Timothy Goodman. That's right. Let's Sold go. out, Nike.com. It's wild. Um, but yeah, you know, like, I don't know. I forgot what your initial question was, but. <laughs> well, I think, it. you know, we were talking about how you felt about like artist comparisons and honoring people's legacy. And I, and yeah. I felt like that was, that still felt very relevant because it's about people honoring the artists themselves. Exactly. And I've, and then, you know, and I've had my work ripped off by massive conglomerates and fashion brands and it's hurt and it's been hard and I've tried to fight and you can't do anything because I don't have a million dollars to fight them in court for a year or something, you know? And it's like, you see these companies squash these artists, you know, and it's really heartbreaking. Um, 
but you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about, you know, re a couple months ago, I had to kind of like do a whole Instagram post and like kind of put my flag in the ground about Mr. Doodle. Do you know Mr. Doodle? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Cause all these, suddenly he, he drew all over his house or whatever. And he got even bigger and more famous. And all these people were like writing on some of my posts saying that I was, I'm a rip off. I was ripping him off and that I had been copying him and all these things. And it was just so dumbfounded. I was so dumbfounded because, um, like I started this, I did my first mural when he was in high school. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my Sharpie book came out in 2015 while he was a senior in college. <laughs> like I haven't, I didn't even know who this guy was until like a couple years ago. Like, so the fact that like people are like, so I, you have to, you know, and it sucks, but you gotta, you know, I have to make a post and put my flag in the ground and be like, here's my work. Like, here's what I've been doing. I've been doing this since, you know, 2011, since I started yeah. working, you know, and like both our styles have become more refined, but it, I'm, I didn't even know who this guy was, you know what I mean? Yeah. So just because this guy has more followers than me now, or he's more like quote unquote famous than me now, doesn't, doesn't mean anything in the terms of like the kind of work I'm doing or that, that I came first. And yeah. I'm not saying he's ripping me off or anything. I'm just saying like, but also like, we should all be bowing down to like the grandfather of Keith Haring who like kind of started this initial style. And also my work is wildly different than his. My work is all editorial in the sense. Mm. He draws characters, you know? Um, I'm drawing about like every place to go in New York or in Paris or whatever, you know? And it's full of lettering and type. Like it's so much, it's so different. Yeah. But I guess to, to folks, they just see like black line drawings and they just think, oh, it's like, but would you think that way if you heard Nas and Jay-Z, would you think they're ripping each other off or because they're both from New York and they, you know, or if you heard any two classic rock bands or whatever, like we're all coming like from genres. Whole, oh, we're all coming from genres. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the circle back to this, like the online in real life and how like, yeah. this, I mean, it's it it comes with the territory now but you have found a way to translate your work into books into shoes into packaging into murals and once it's released it kind of has a life of its own yeah. and it doesn't really entirely always belong to you but at the end of the day like you somehow you're able to still fully express yourself while putting out work that is still of service to others. And your word of the year is service. Is service. We talked about that mm -hmm. earlier this year. And I'd love to know what your relationship with that word is right now and what question you are asking yourself this year because of it. Well, you know, it's interesting because this year started like my book was published at the end of January. So I kind of hit the ground running, you yeah. know, and it was very intense and it might not have been the way I wanted to start the year. Cause I would like to kind of glide into the year, like, you know, without so much kind of, uh, uh responsibility. And, and, um, so I'm finally like taking a breath now. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to be talking to you because I feel like, oh, this kind of stuff is behind me a little bit and I'm like in a good space. Not that I wasn't in a good space there. It was just a very kind of hectic mm -hmm. space. Um, and so I'm not quite sure what my question is right now. I do feel that I want to, um, you know, think about how, just think about the relationship um, 
that I'm having with everyone around me at all times and that I'm kind of honoring those relationships mm-hmm. and that I'm honoring my existence. Um, and whether that is, you know, feeling my feet on the ground or taking a deep breath in the midst of it all or looking at, you know, someone's the side of their face and just seeing who they are, you know, like those mo- those little moments right now feel so precious to me mm-hmm. and so sacred. And so I'm just really trying to consume consume that like a sponge as much as possible. So, yeah, and I think that is about service in so in so many ways because in order to serve you have to be in a good holistic space. You have to be serving yourself you have to be first. Yourself first. Exactly. Yeah. And to serve others, I, I think that you have to see them, mm-hmm. you know? And what does it mean to see someone? What does it mean to, you know, um, affirm their existence as much as, as your own? So, yeah. yeah. I'd love to wrap with um, this thing that we do called, if you really knew me. So it's just a statement. If you really knew me, you would know, and you can, just give us a few, however many come out. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. And you don't um, have to think too much about them all right. at all. If you really knew me, you would know that I love chickpea cookies. <laughs> <laughs> if you really knew me, you would know that I fucking love New York City. Yes. Everything I do is, is to honor New York in so many ways. Um, if you really knew me, you would know that, oh, there's a good one here somewhere. Let it come to me, let it come to me. You would know that I love talking to taxi drivers, like so much. If you really knew me, you would know that I'm tall and sitting in economy on the airplane is very difficult. <laughs> That's a good one. If you, if you really knew me, you would know that I love I love this show called Felicity so much. You can catch it on Hulu right now. Don't sleep <laughs> on it. Give it, the first two episodes are slow. Just give it. Carrie Russell (laughs) is incredible. She was one of the youngest people to ever win a Golden Globe for her acting in it. I think she might be the youngest person. I'm like huge, huge fan. Love that. Should I just keep going? You can give us, let's get get one more (laughs) closing. It's it's poetic. It's like this, I actually engage, like um, when I do my talks, we do an If You Really Knew Me segment and I have everybody anonymously do it Uh, and then perform it as a poem. Oh, that's incredible. And it's really, yeah, because you can, it's just downloads. So give us your, give us your final If You Really Knew Me. Not to go back to the airplane thing, but If You Really Knew Me, you would know that I can't stand when people put their wind- their windows down. Like, how can you not look outside? The the magic of flying, like you're, I don't know. I, I get it, if you perfect. have a phobia, you know, but. That's beautiful, I am with you on that one. Yeah. I really am. Thank you so much, Timothy. Thank you so much, Noor. This was awesome. Podcast Noor is an at your service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bahid Frazier. The theme music is Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. 
extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Timothy Goodman. Make sure you grab a copy of his graphic memoir, I Always Think It's Forever. As always, at your service.